The following Access Utah program was first broadcast in May of this year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In a remote corner of Oregon, James Pogue found himself at the heart of a rebellion. Granted unmatched access by Ammon Bundy to the armed occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, Pogue met ranchers and militiamen ready to be uh, to die fighting the federal government. He witnessed the uh, fallout of communities riven by politics and the danger and allure of uncompromising religious belief. The occupation, as we know, ended in the shooting death of one rancher, the imprisonment of dozens more, and a firestorm over the role of government that engulfed national headlines. James Pogue's new book, Chosen Country, examines the underpinnings of this rural uprising and struggles to reconcile diverging ideas of freedom, tracing a cultural fault line that spans the nation. James Pogue has written for The New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, Granta, New Republic, and Vice, where he's a contributing editor. James Pogue, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, so it's a very interesting book, and um, and you're on the inside. This gives us a very interesting uh, and valuable um, insight in, into motivations and, uh, and just who, the, who these people are. Um, how did you get that access? Well, I had done reporting on militias before, somewhat by accident. Um, and so I had gone to a larger standoff uh, in southern Oregon, where, uh, which I just thought was crazy because there were no national media there. And there were, by my count, at least scores, maybe hundreds of people um, having a standoff with the BLM over what I found to be a sort of obscure regulatory dispute over a gold mine um, that was run by two guys with pickaxes. Um, and so I thought this was bizarre, and I didn't understand what could cause hundreds of people to show up claiming they were willing to die over a regulatory dispute. Um, and so I wrote about that for Vice, um, and a lot of those guys read it and felt, if not that I was, you know, taking their side, which I certainly wasn't, but they felt heard for a moment. And so when I showed up at the Malheur standoff, um, they kind of let me into the whole thing. And so that night there were drones flying around, allegedly, um, and they were moving earth movers up and thinking that the FBI was going to come in, and they brought me in to sleep um, in the compound. Yeah, just a very, very interesting. Uh, maybe we talk a little bit about that previous uh, standoff. Uh, obscure rules about mining, right? And and uh, and and uh, uh, worries that the, uh, the the feds were going to burn down cabins, trying to get people out of the woods. And uh, yeah, pretty obscure. But but the, I guess the the motivations and the beliefs. Um, there's a straight line from there to Malheur and, and many other uh, standoffs. Yeah, well, so the, the story there is that in, in about, let's say, in the early 70s, as the environmental movement began um, winning more victories and understanding essentially that they could use federal agencies um, to advance causes that federal law changes had allowed them to push through, such as... Um, the big one was FLIPMA, which um, sort of made the BLM into something more like the Forest Service and a, con- and a conservation agency. Um, but there was also the Envi- Endangered Species Act and a number of other ones. Um, environmental groups were able to push in um, certain changes to how the federal land man- management agencies worked. Um, and these were, by and large, for a lot of purposes, very good. But it meant that people who had lived on the land and worked on the land for 
uh, excuse me, in many cases generations, um, couldn't use it the way they had. And so there were a lot of people in this case in southern Oregon who had basically been homesteading up in the mountains, um, mining, small claims. Uh, a lot of people have been logging. And over the course of a pretty short period of time, um, the logging industry folded up um, due to, largely due to a, um, a controversy, controversy about the spotted owl. Um, and mining essentially ended, homesteading in the mountains essentially ended. A lot of people were burned out. That's now something that they, the agencies will acknowledge, but they kind of didn't like to talk about it. It happened largely in secret. And so you had a lot of people who felt as though their way of life was being destroyed and that no one was paying any attention. Um, and it's also true uh, that in many of these communities, the local economies kind of dried up because without timber, without mining, um, not only did you know an individual not have the ability to make a living necessarily, but then the tax base would dry up, and so services would dry up, and then you know people would be losing jobs in the county offices, and it would become a spiral. And this happened in many places across the West. Um, you mentioned uh, the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, 1976, and then, uh, as some of us uh, are old enough, remember the Sagebrush Rebellion. I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, and then connect it up to, uh, you know, more recently. Well, so the Sagebrush Rebellion um, was essentially a legislative, or it was pushed by legislators, um, and one might probably say by um, resource extractors who had an interest in this sort of thing, um, to kind of fight back against the changes in a lot of these agencies. Um, and so the hotbeds of this, um, as many people in Utah will probably know, were rural areas, especially in the Great Basin, um, which is why it became known as the Sagebrush Rebellion. Um, and this lasted, I mean, this was something, you know, you had Ronald Reagan declaring himself a rebel. This was something that it reached national politics. And I think you're absolutely right that it does provide the link between the early 70s and what happened today, because what the Sagebrush Rebels did was they linked what someone might fairly say were pretty minor regulatory changes to how we manage public lands to an entirely larger concept of liberty and what an American way of life looked like. And the Sagebrush Rebellion essentially went to the American public and said, the American way of life is under attack through these laws and regulations. Hmm. Um, there is a strain of thought to, for quite strong, uh, I think doesn't get the attention perhaps uh, until, Malheur, um, that, that perhaps it deserves. Um, because, you know, a lot of people out there believing this, uh, what is the case for you know, some out there believe that uh, there, there's no case for federal control of any land? Well, so there's, <laughs> I'll try to do this quickly. There's a lot of different people who think a lot of different things about this. Um, and the one that probably your listeners will have heard most is this idea that somewhere in the constitution, it says that the federal government isn't allowed to own land at all. Um, and the idea behind that, without getting all too caught up in the wording, is essentially that there's a line in the Constitution that says that the federal government isn't allowed to own land more than 10 miles square, which is meant to represent D.C., and then a series of other things that they're allowed to have, like forts, dockyards, and other needful buildings. Um, that language is explicitly superseded in other places in the Constitution. Um, but if you already believe that... <laughs> The federal land 
um, regulatory decisions and things like this are an infringement upon a basic fundamental American concept of liberty, if you already believe that ranching and mining are in a way, like the highest expressions of like a certain rugged American freedom, then you can find in the Constitution a justification that removes the federal government entirely from the equation, in theory, and that justifies your pre-existing worldview pretty beautifully. Um, and this is something that has been picked up on, um, I mean, speaking of Utah, it's been picked up on specifically in Utah um, and pushed forward um, in a sort of religious way, in the sense that, you know, many people um, who back this movement from a religious standpoint um, tend to view the Constitution word for word as something like a holy document. And so when they see that thing about 10 miles square, they see the federal government as infringing not only the Constitution, but something like God's will. Hmm. Uh you made reference that let's go there. Um, you know, uh, people in Utah and the West be very interested in the connection to uh, Mormonism. There, there's long history there, right? Uh, Mormons and distrust of the federal government, long fights there, um, and and uh, coinciding with and sometimes opposed to this uh, belief, Mormon belief, that the Constitution is a divinely inspired document. Right, and so this was something that in reporting the book. I mean, I'll be honest, I. I had to learn this on the fly as I was at the standoff, because truth be told, when I showed up, I had the vaguest idea that, for example, the Bundys were Mormons, and I had the vaguest idea of sort of that there was some connection between this sort of worldview and and the faith. And then, (laughs) like, very soon after, I would be in these prayer circles where we're talking about you know, I had thought that we were talking about a bird sanctuary, and all of a sudden we're talking about God's will and freedom as represented by the Constitution. And all of a sudden, um, you know, I had to go back in this history and start to learn it myself, and it was very interesting. And, if, and of course, you're right. I mean, you have a long history in Utah um, of people, and not only in Utah, but in places where people from Utah have then moved, um, often because of disputes with the federal government. So in a way, um, this has been seeded by Mormonism and by a a legacy of conflict with the federal government throughout the West in ways that people wouldn't necessarily understand. You know, southern Idaho, northern Arizona, much of of Nevada. Um, And I I would say, in a way, because of the coherence of Mormon politics and and a certain coherence of... um, Mormons as a cultural group, it's often easy for people who aren't necessarily of that background to be exposed to it and see it, see the strength of the faith and the strength of the politics and, and be like, wow, that's really powerful. That must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've, that's something that I've noticed a, a lot in areas that are not necessarily Mormon. They're not necessarily places you would think of as Mormon communities, but where Mormons have a great deal of influence in this kind of politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, uh, parenthetically, um, th- I hope I got this right in the book. Uh, this just stood out to me. Um, during the standoff, um, there were some you know, Mormon FBI agents, and uh, the Bundys would, uh, I don't know if they sit side by side in church, they'd, they'd be going to church together. Yes, that, um, I mean, that's not my explicit reporting. That So I have that... Um, I mean, that's something that was reported, I believe, by the Oregonian, and I have no reason not to think was true. Um, And that came out later. But yes, I mean, one of the craziest things about this whole standoff was that, you know, the Bundys, well, I'll say two things. 
the first thing is that it was portrayed in the national media as as a sort of thing where the Bundys received a lot of opprobrium from the local populace, which is to some degree true, but they also had a lot of support. And so they went freely to church, um, and I would have been very surprised if they got many bad looks in church when they did that. Um, and yes, they the FBI, um, there was a rumor, which I'm not sure is true, about the sort of higher-ups in the investigation having been of a Mormon background, but then they sent people certainly to go to church. One of them sat next to Ryan Bundy at church, um, and I believe later acknowledged that. Hmm. Yeah, just to, and given what later happened, uh, you know, uh, right. tra- tra- tragedy, but with uh, but this kind of calm in the middle of that. Um, we're talking with uh, James Pogue. His very interesting new book is Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West. And we're talking about the standoff at the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. Also, the militia movement, uh, this, this this undercurrent, um, and many standoffs. Before we go to break, Jim Spog, you, uh, you quote the High Country News. They did a, a piece, um, Defuse the West was the, was, the, was, the, was the title of the series. So 50 incidents, 50 standoffs, or, or I guess the... the I guess not full-blown standoffs, 50 incidents between 2010 and 2014. And, and you know, I would say even in a way that it's more disturbing than just standoffs because these are, you know, I have a lot of friends who work for the Forest Service and um, not to reveal anything about what they necessarily tell me, but, you know, those 50 incidents, incidents excuse me, involve fire bombings, involve assassination attempts, um, and this has been going on for quite some time. This is... The, those incidents are only the things that they were tracking between that time. Um, and it's very hard to get more information about it, but it is clear that it's very widespread. Um, and, so, and I also think there's no reason to doubt that it might be growing. It might be growing, That's, which, is, which is troubling. Uh, so the, the, the reporting by the High Country News 2010-2014, does that coincide with the Obama administration? Why the, is that a spike, or is that just a, it's just not reported much? Well, I think that there's a couple things going on there. It coincides with the Obama administration, which did drive a great number of people towards the militia movement. That said, the anger over public lands management and this concept of what American liberty is goes much deeper, and it goes far beyond the Obama administration. Um, I would frankly be... There's a certain lull that's happening now with the election of Trump, but I would be surprised to see that last, because the fundamental issues remain. The fundamental issues in the land management agencies are not going anywhere. Um, And the fundamental anger over what a lot of people view as a disappearing way of life, um, that... The only thing that could change that is if the way of life came back, and we see no signs of that happening. By the way, um, your your perception was why is this not being reported uh, more? This is 2014, right? Uh, I think 2014, right. 2015, the the mining incident. Um, so we have two big ones. We have the standoff at the Cliven Bundy Ranch, and then we have Malheur. And uh, at least it, nothing really else has percolated into my consciousness. I think maybe I'm representative. Why why have others not been reported as much? Well, I think that part of the issue is that it's hard for people to understand it as a narrative. And I think it, it's very hard, especially in, you know, say 2014, it was harder for people then to view, frankly, the chaos that was coming into our national politics and our national discussion as something that was real. Um, and so I think we had hints of it, but it was hard to contextualize the idea of 
you know, however many scores of people on a mountain with, you know, digging foxholes and setting up trenches and preparing for helicopters to land. That felt crazy in a way that I tend to think doesn't feel as crazy now. I tend to think that people understand that our politics is going through a massive upheaval and that whether it's armed chaos or simply chaos, that those things are coming to all of us. Um, and so I, for, for me, the Malheur standoff was sort of the beginning of the politics of 2016, where you had people who were so incredibly alienated from what they viewed as American politics that they didn't mind the idea of being killed in service of a different idea. Um, that's something that I think in 2014 still felt a little strange to us. Mm. Uh, and so I suppose uh, what maybe has been viewed by the mainstream is, oh, those people are just really out there. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe they weren't, maybe they aren't as out there as we, as we thought. That's exactly how I think it. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, have you to tell us about Clive and Bundy, Ammon Bundy, uh, LaVoy Finnecum. Uh, uh, interesting uh, sort of central person in your book. I was going to call him a character, but he's a real person. Uh, Wes Kerr? Wes Kerr? Wes Kerr. Wes Kerr, who uh, grew up in Manta here in, in mm-hmm. uh, Utah. Uh, he's a, a sort of a, a central person in the book. We'll uh, meet these uh, people and talk more about this idea of liberty and freedom and how that uh, connects uh, into Malheuron and uh, the other uh, standoffs. The book is Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West. James Pogue is the author. More following the break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are revisiting this conversation from uh, May of this year, but uh, the conversation can continue. We can get your comment in at the breaks. And uh, here's an interesting comment that came in in May and was posted to our website. This is Lynn. Lynn says, did he not notice the extreme high numbers who were felons, others with mental issues, all have been, have been influenced by 30-plus years of anti-government talk shows, media, extremists, and extraction industries all driving the pop culture belief that these people hold. I remember the 60s and the hundreds of thousands buying into anti-establishment movement. Over the years, I came to see that the majority of those people did not really hold those beliefs, even though they talked the talk. Most did not even understand what their movement really was about. They were there because it became fashionable and popular to be in the movement and a place to feel they belonged. Seeing this today appears to be the exact same phenomenon. The more members felt out of touch with society, the more they became involved in action with the movement. They finally feel like they belong to a group and not an outcast or an outsider. Uh, nobody uh, or nobody like their life has been. That's a comment from Lynn on our website. You can comment uh, right now. We'll get your comment in at the next break. Upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, our Hidden Side of Sports series continues with a look at how elite athletes are different from you and me. I did a bunch of push-ups and sit-ups that night until I was um, throwing up. And what if your goal is getting your kid into an elite university? The answer, I think, is you want your kid to be a fencer. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock 
on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with James Pogue. Uh, he is uh, a writer. He's written for the New York uh, New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, Granta, New Republican Vice, where he is a contributing editor. Uh, lives in New Mexico, and uh, he has a new book out, A Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West. Uh, he was granted unmatched access uh, by Ammon Bundy to the armed occupation of Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, the standoff there, and he's done reporting on militia movements and, uh, and other confrontations in the West. Uh, before we get to uh, Clavin Bundy, Ammon Bundy, some of the uh, very interesting people uh, in the book, of course, real-life people, um, what if you could uh, talk about uh, some of the groups? Uh, there, there's a whole variety of groups here, right? Uh, there's uh, patriot groups and uh, ranchers, and uh, maybe we start with the Oath Keepers. They're a very interesting sure. group. Um, so the Oath Keepers claim, and uh, I mean, we should... We have every reason to doubt this claim, but they claim to have 30,000 members, um, which, even if a fraction of that was true, is still a lot of people. Um, And they are an organization that essentially describes itself as being for former military and law enforcement, um, or former or current military and law enforcement, um, people who have taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and who now swear in a sort of paramilitary way to uphold what they see as the Constitution. Um, and so they have a very sort of, um, you know, they, if you, they, they're very careful about, you know, not appearing to be racist. They're very careful about um, trying to appear sane. Um, and so they have a set of principles that, you know, to some degree, you know, they, they refuse to obey unconstitutional orders. Um, but they also have this strand of sort of black hel- helicopter paranoia where they, they require people to promise that they will um, refuse to round up Americans and send them to concentration camps. Um, and then they also sort of have a lot of overlap with other groups that are much less organized, like the Three Percenters, um, which is an umbrella sort of idea organization of people who consider themselves patriots, um, but who, I mean, for example, you get a lot of three percenters who showed up at Charlottesville um, at the white nationalist rallies. Um, You get uh, a certain number of three percenters who've been in sort of uh, plots to bomb uh, Muslim immigrants. Um, And so there's a lot of overlap between like the sort of more traditional elements of the extreme right in in America and the Oath Keepers. Um, And then you have a lot of sort of smaller more disorganized groups. Um, some of them are three percenters. Some of them, uh, for example, one of the most significant ones in the Bundy story is a group of people led by a man named Ryan Payne who came down uh, from Montana. The name of their group is escaping me right now, but it's um, it. And so that those might be twelve guys, you know, who who train in someone's backyard. Um, some of them are former military. Um, a certain number of them, which, and I'm not sure why this is such an epidemic among these guys, but a certain number of them uh, claim to have been former military and, in fact, you know, have done nothing of the kind. Um, but they form, a, at a certain point, like they form quite a number of people because if people who track this have come to the conclusion that there's probably, you know, about a thousand of them in the country. Uh, and some of them have quite a few people in them. So if you do the math, that's a lot of Americans. Uh, by the way, just to follow up, uh, three percenters, what's, where, where's that, where, where's the name come from? So it comes from a, 
what I'm told, and I haven't personally done the research on this, but um, what I'm told is the spurious claim that only 3% of able-bodied military-age men in the United States, or in what would become the United States, um, were willing to fight for the patriot cause um, in the American Revolution. So the idea is that they're Mm. descendants of that bold 3%. Mm. There's a scene in the book where you're traveling with, uh, with some of the fellows leaving Malheur and, and going down to uh, to Utah, and there's dis- there uh, there's a discussion, uh, a connection to, uh, hey, we're we're in some ways like the American Revolution, right? We're like the rebels there. Well, yes. So so this gets into. Um uh, one figure who becomes sort of a main character uh, in the book, uh, who you mentioned, Wesley Care, um, because he's a guy who's about my age, um, who had, at the time, he was Ammon Bundy's personal bodyguard. Um, and he had grown up in Manti, um, in a family that had, you know, you know, according to him, you know, had ranched and been a part of you know, sort of settling Utah in an age when you could go out on the land and make a living. And to his mind, his family and a lot of his neighbors had been managed out of business by the federal government. So to him, he was thinking, well, if we have nothing left to lose, we can't make a living doing what we've always done. We don't have a lot of other options. At a certain point, when is it wrong to rebel? Um, And so this commenced this whole conversation, um, which gets to uh, something in your previous question as well. This was a conversation that was with people who were not militiamen, who were supportive people on the more ranching side of things, who were all from um, the the three other people in the car were uh, from Kanosh, Utah. Um, and so they went through this whole thing where they discussed, and, you know, with certain people would have been more on uh, the Bundy side of things, and certain people in the car were more... Um, adamantly opposed to it, but there was a real discussion about, are we, you know, speaking for them, are we at a point where the only path forward we have is rebellion? And it was very interesting, because I had just never heard such conversations in America. Um, And again, I kind of think that now people are having those conversations. It's a very strange new world we're in. This might be a good, good time to bring in, um, I guess, tensions between the official hierarchy of the LDS Church and members of the church, you know, including Ammon right. Bundy, um, because on this trip, <laughs> Wes, I think it's Wes, says, let's go and talk to the First Presidency of the Church. Right, uh, which was a huge shock to me. I don't even know if I had heard the term First Presidency at that point. I mean, this was all very new to me. Um, and, you know, I had just spent the previous, I don't know, week or something, uh, pretty much with Ammon all the time. Um, and Ammon is an extremely charismatic figure. He's an extremely um, religious guy. Uh, he doesn't wear his faith on his sleeve so much, uh, which is in a way a reflection of his faith, because it's a very much an inward thing that you will see when he goes into a prayer circle or something, but that he doesn't talk about to reporters so much, I mean, think maybe because he feels like they can't relate. Um, and so excuse me, um, I had heard from Wes that the church had reached out to him, um, and the church uh, had made a public statement disavowing the whole standoff, um, and that, of course, had made a lot of people angry. Um, Not only people who were participating in the standoff, but I would say probably a lot of people in 
places like rural Utah where there was a certain level of sympathy for it um, and a certain idea that this was part of a tradition in a, a political tradition uh, within Mormonism. Um, it, I think it angered a lot of people, but there were also this. There were also these supposed back channels to him um, where they which they have not ever really talked about. So as we were driving down, we were talking about these back channels. And Wes, who wanted everything to end peacefully, suggested that we just go and talk to them and see if they would, you know, perhaps reach out to Ammon and discuss things with him directly. I'm not sure it was a fully formed plan, but I think the idea was to have some real dialogue between the church and the occupiers, who all of the leadership were um, deeply, deeply religious people. Um, and so we showed up, and they, they were, of course, truly baffled by these like very grimy men um, who, you know, openly acknowledged that they just like showed up from a federal standoff. Um, and but they did have representatives meet with us. Um, and I mean, I won't go too far into it. Mm-hmm. All laid out in the book, but it was quite a surreal experience. Yeah, in the middle of this, uh, you you got to attend a, a broadcast of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> <laughs> I sure did, and it was it was baffling because um, the broadcast was. Uh, I'm sure if any of your listeners have been to one, they you know they have spoken word on a theme, um, and the theme was on the dangers of overly charismatic leaders. Um, and it, it felt very surreal and almost spiritual in the sense that we had just come from this place where there was this incredibly charismatic figure who people were showing up every day claiming to be willing to die for. Um, and then here we were seeing this, um, and we hadn't slept, and we were all sort of delirious. So it was, it was a very bizarre um, but kind of moving moment, actually. Uh, just you quote um, a, a top official of the church, uh, Elder Dallin Oaks. Um, a, a, he gave a talk at, mm-hmm. at some point, uh, warning church members against the patriot. You know, getting too deep into the patriot movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the, the the hierarchy's view of this. I want to uh, quote just a, a passage from the book. This from page sure. one ninety, talking about West West Care. Um, let's see. Uh, until the drive back, you, I hadn't fully realized, you say, how deeply Ammon's worldview already ran in places uh, like where Wes had grown up, which was uh, Manti. Uh, how in coming to the refuge, Wes hadn't so much discovered a new ideology as he had stepped up for one that had been swirling around him all his life. If you took the basic premise of that ideology, the premise is a certain brand of Western mythos, that the sanctity of the Constitution, American freedom, and a way of life were all things worth dying for, and that real patriots and real men were not afraid to die for what they believed in. Um, and you go on to say that uh, when you're with Wes and uh, they learned that he had been up at the standoff, uh, he he was treated like a celebrity in some of these places in rural Utah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, <laughs> we went uh, through all of this, actually. It's kind of funny. Uh, I got into off-roading, um, and so uh, I have I've built up a truck and whatnot. And I actually, Wes and I went to the... Um, not this year's, but last year's uh, Easter Jeep Jamboree in Moab. Um, and there were people there who really, they treated, they were like fans. Um, and he recounted the story. And Wes, of course, um, well, I mean, Wes is a very complicated figure because he's not really on one side or the other of any of this. Um, and that's sort of why he becomes an animating force in the book. Um, but he had to navigate some of the complexities of this because he had to be able to say, you know, uh, 
a lot of what was going on at the refuge was dangerous and um, maybe not productive, uh, but also, you know, he has his worldview and he has where he came from and he has um, he has that swirling ideology, as you say. So uh, tell me about uh, Ammon Bundy. You say he's a charismatic figure, um, you, you know, uh, uh, active member, at least that time, of the LDS Church, right? And and part of this, his actions informed by at least his view, his his uh, vision of his Mormon faith. Um, some Maybe we could start here. Um, the word Kool-Aid comes up, this phrase, you drank the Kool-Aid comes up, you say. People say, I, I, I haven't drunk the Kool-Aid, or I didn't, it did... Let me phrase it this way. Did Ammon Bunny see himself as a prophetic figure? Because others, others kind of did. Right, and that's what's very complicated and interesting about him. If you asked, I, I promise you 100% that if you asked this question to Ammon Bundy right now, he would say absolutely not. Um, but that said, the thing that struck me the most about Ammon, and I don't know Cliven personally, um, which has largely to do with the fact that uh, he was in jail for much of the time that I was reporting this, um, but... With regard to both Ammon and Cliven, there's something that you notice about people who have come into their orbit, which is that after an extremely short period of time, and I don't mean days, I mean hours, you have people signing on to their movement, you have people going on camera saying they're willing to die for this, you have people agreeing, for example, Wes agreed to be Ammon Bundy's bodyguard after knowing him for, I think, maybe three hours. Um, and the question that they asked him, I'm quoting him, the question that they asked him was, will you take a bullet for this man? Um, and th- that, where I come from, is just not the way that business normally gets done. Um, and so I was deeply intrigued by this charisma. And, you know, it's funny, I would almost say that it's not, there's a certain sort of set of values and politics that Ammon has, but they're all subservient to his faith. His faith is the absolute animating thing that, about him. Um, and it takes a long time to realize that, because when he does a news conference um, outside of the Mallory standoff, or, for example, when you know he was on camera a lot uh, in the time surrounding his trial, he doesn't talk about this so much. Um, but, you know, and I won't go to, into it too much because it gets into the weeds, but there are things about the Mallory standoff um, and what inspired it that have really nothing to do with regulatory policy. They have to do with spirits um, and him being directed by a higher power. Um, and so what I thought was really interesting about um, both Ammon and the Bundy family at large is that they had an ability that I've personally never seen to translate a very private inward faith um, for a lot of them into a force of charisma and a force of will and an ability to inspire people who don't even share that faith. Um, and I thought that was baffling. Um, and Ammon, as a figure, you know, he's he's quite young. I mean, early 40s now. Um, he's not... And he exudes a certain level of wisdom beyond his years. Um, again, I'm, now I'm sounding like I'm super impressed by him. But all of this can also make someone into, a, you know, what you might think of as a rather dangerous figure. Um, and that's what, to me, was so compelling, is you have someone who's very genial, very humble uh, outwardly, um, 
and who's motivated by very, very internal quiet factors, who then can cause people to do things that are truly dangerous. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting, this intersection with religious belief. And I, I guess the Mormon Church probably officials would appreciate me interjecting here. They don't agree with what Hammond was, right, was doing, right? right. Um, yeah, and, and sorry, I should have said that earlier, too. Yeah. I mean, they made a very forceful statement about this. And part of why um, our trip down was so complicated is that a, a lot of, when we arrived on Temple Square, a lot of the Church's interest was just to say, hey, this is not our issue. These are people who are not acting in our name. Mm-hmm. Anyway, go on, sorry. Um, and you go back to, you know, the FBI agents and the Bundys are sitting together in church. It's, uh, you know, there, there's, right. there's a wide, wide range of, of religious motivations here, um, or at least how, how people personally interpret what, uh, what their belief uh, is. Uh, Cliven Bundy, there's an intersection with religion here. He, he, he has said that he, he believes he's been called by God or had been called by God to, uh, to do certain things. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Cliven, I, I mean, I, I would say that, that Ammon shares that sort of general. Nothing, nothing that happened at the Malheur standoff would have happened if Ammon hadn't felt called by God to go there. Um, Cliven is much more open about it. Um, Cliven is, you might say, a more old-school figure. Um, and so, for example, uh, I, I hope that I can get this prophecy right, but he at the standoff in 2014, which had a lot of, you know, has a lot of backstory that's probably too complicated to go into right here, but he had hundreds of people on his ranch, um, some large but unknowable portion of them were armed, and they were winning victories. I mean, they they were able to um, take a group of BLM agents who had rounded up um, hundreds of his cattle and forced them to release those cattle. Um, And then, he said that he wanted them to go to the gates of Lake Mead and seize the guns, seize the guns of the federal agents at the park rangers at Lake Mead and bring them back to him. Um, and he said that he had had this revelation in the night and that th- this was something that needed to happen and it was going to be the start, presumably, of some sort of like larger uprising against the federal government. Um, and not only did he say this, but then a couple days later when it didn't happen, he berated all of these cheering people who felt like they had won this victory. And he was like, you know, I told you to go get those guns. I wasn't joking. Um, And it was a very sort of disturbing moment because it, well, depending on how you look at it, because to Cliven's mind, he was acting on God's orders and people were disobeying something that was literally a prophecy. To someone else's mind, it looked like he was a madman and that people would still follow him. So it was a very complicated moment, um, and that's kind of how Cliven is. He doesn't. He listens to himself and God, and I'm not sure about anybody else. Hmm. Um, as I'm reading about uh, Cliven and Ammon, um, I found it irresistible in my mind to make a connection to John Brown, the uh, Civil War era figure. <laughs> we we have a conception of him as kind of a wild-eyed Old Testament uh, figure, mm-hmm. very informed by his religious beliefs and the rabid anti-abolitionist. Um, I don't know if that's that connection has occurred to you. You know, um, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but, you know, the Writing this book, I thought a lot both about John Brown and about the Black Panthers, um, because in a certain way, and of course not with regard to the politics, but in a certain way, um, the things that Ammon and Cliven have been able to do 
remind you of nothing so much as that American insurrectionary tradition, which, um, you know, often took place in this country on the left. Um, And so... uh, I, I like I I thought a lot about John Brown, um, and with some disquiet because the real logic of John Brown is not the takeover of Harper's Ferry. It was the bleeding Kansas and internecine warfare at a time when Americans ceased to be able to talk to each other, and it became fratricidal violence. So that was something that was in my head a lot writing this book. Um, the other thing, of course, is when the Black Panthers walked in with rifles and took over the statehouse in California. You know, that was a very similar occupation in a way. Legal firearms in a place that represented the power of the state um, and a sort of challenge to say, get us out of here. Um, that's perhaps a bleak view of the future if, if we, because it's not too much of a leap to say, you know, bloody Kansas, we've, we've stopped talking to each other to, we've stopped talking to each other today. Well, I suppose, um, I, guess, I guess the reason it was in my head was, and the reason I wanted to do this book was this feeling that, I mean, it's, it's sort of silly because in a way, you know, this is just a question about regulatory issues out in the middle of nowhere. But on the other hand, when you see people already, again, being willing to die over what seem to be regulatory issues in the middle of nowhere, then you have to wonder what can we do to present this? And like, how, how seriously do we have to take it to make sure that we don't come to that pass, you know? And so that was sort of the project of this book, was to, was to sort of engage with a level of rage that would cause people like uh, Lavoie Finicum to be so willing to die. Um, because I don't think that that was quite where we were as a country, even, you know, a decade and a half ago. Well, Hal, that's a great question. How, what What are your thoughts? How How do we diffuse the situation? How How best to um, um, you know to remove that kindling, as it as it were? Well, see, the thing. Okay, so the thing about um, that, to my mind, connects the regulatory issues with um, you know the small land management regulatory issues with a larger question about who we are as a people and and our politics. Is that, for example. We have a group of people who have, in terms of politics, have created political space for anger like this, in the sense of um, fanning a deep sense of alienation among generally white, um, generally already predisposed to conservative politics groups of people. And certain of those people have turned to total extremism, as we've seen, and as the book is sort of about. Um, And the trick that I think about with regard to land management is, you know, one of the effects of that right-wing turn in American politics has been the absolute gutting of most of our public services, of um, certainly the Forest Service and the BLM, um, and of a certain level of safety net that it once existed in this country. So, of course, if you have a government that's not working, then you're going to have people who oppose that government, sometimes violently. Um, because all that these people are seeing is not a forest service that's well-funded, that's preventing fires, that's, um, you know, working to make a true sort of functioning multiple-use environment. What the forest service does is essentially, and I, I feel bad for my friends in the forest service for saying this, but, you know, to some degree it's easy to look at, as, from the outside, it's easy to look at what the Forest Service does today as batting down environmental lawsuits and settling them as quickly as possible and fighting fires because they just don't have the funding to do other things. And so if you're a rancher and you 
don't see the Forest Service acting in the service of your community, and you had a way of life that once, you know, that you remember as having been quite nice and having sustained a quite nice lifestyle back in the day, then of course there will be rage there. Um, and of course, you know, as, as the American middle class has been sort of hollowed out, there aren't a lot of other options for people to turn to. So they turn to the past. Um, and so in a way, all of these sort of tie into broader conversations in America about our politics, about inequality, um, about visions of a past where, you know, perhaps there was a stronger middle class and an easier way to make a stable middle class life. Um, and to my mind, until we address things like that, then of course you're going to have conversations about tyranny because that's how people experience their government and their politics at large. They don't have a purchase in it. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have a final segment with James Pogue. The book is Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West. More with James Pogue following this break. We were able to take whatever we could carry in our two hands. At the beginning of World War II, the United States government forced more than 100,000 Japanese Americans into prison camps. We thought we were American citizens, therefore we were protected by the Constitution to continue to have the freedom, the liberty that all Americans have a right to. Listen for Order 9066 from APM Reports. Join us for this three-part series. Part two is Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Dixie State University Celebrity Concert Series in St. George, featuring the Utah Symphony, Thursday, October 4th. Upcoming shows include BYU Ballroom Dance Company and the Atos Trio. Ticket information at CelebrityConcertSeries.com. The Proud Boys think feminism went too far and it's bad for men and women. The feminist mentality bodes very well for guys who just want to screw women and then dump them when they become 35. I think if women had their heads screwed on properly, they'd realize that it's these so-called sexists who have their best interests in mind. The new male chauvinism. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. And the Access Utah program you're listening to was first broadcast in May of this year. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with James Pogue. It's a very interesting uh, new book. It's Chosen Country, A Rebellion in the West. Uh, so, James Pogue, um, the, the uh, title of the book comes from a quotation from Thomas Jefferson, uh, right, uh, that you put in the front of the book. Everybody appeals to Thomas Jefferson, uh, I guess, uh, including the, you know, the, the, the adherents to the, the militia movement and the, and the Oath Keepers and the other groups. Right. I mean, and, you know, because this, again, goes into a sort of conversation about um, where we are as a country. I mean, these guys are all sort of Jeffersonians and have this Jeffersonian idea of what we once were. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's so interesting talking about this in places like Utah because there's so much land in a way that in New York, I mean, the, the Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian division in American politics goes back to the very beginning of the Republic. But like in New York, it's hard for people to even understand this idea of being owed a patch of land and owed a living that if you can work hard enough um, and you can make a patch of land into something that you will be able to raise a family in a relatively comfortable manner. I don't know many New Yorkers who still cling to that idea, which is perhaps sad, but of course that's a product of a lot of different forces. For the Bundy family, um, I think they never gave that up. 
I think it never quite occurred to them that that's something that the rest of the country doesn't quite believe anymore. Um, and that, to me, was, again, part of what was compelling about them, is, is that it was sort of refreshing, I will admit, to have, you know, to be in the presence of someone who believes in that older style of, uh, you know, a vision of what Americans are owed and how Americans are supposed to make their way in the world. Um, and, and I would say just, like, if I was compelled by that, it's not that surprising that a lot of militiamen who probably have a lot of difficulty finding steady employment, um, certainly the ones I've talked to, that's always been the case, um, who maybe, you know, have issues at home, family-wise, uh, that might stem from, you know, not having enough money at home. And then they show up in the presence of Ammon, and he says, you know what, we're owed a, a living on the land. Well, that makes sense. That's a vision of the future. It's not a practicable one, but it's one that people, I think, will die for, in a way. And and it's it's a conflict, but, you know, people in the East might think, uh, well, there's so much land out there, but, uh, you know, in Utah, 67% is... Uh, owned by the federal government at 81% in Nevada. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. you know, large, large swaths of it are controlled by the federal government, and there, therein lies the, the conflict. I wonder, just a few minutes left, um, the, the, the standoff of Malheur was supposed to be uh, the, the start of a bigger movement, I guess, or continuation. What was the vision that Ammon Bundy had? Well, so the vision, um, it, it's almost, it sounds almost funny to describe, but the vision... Uh, if if we could circle back a little bit to what happened at the Bundy Ranch, you know, they Cliven had canceled his contracts with um, the federal government and basically had been doing business as though the federal government didn't exist, running his cattle on public land. Excuse me. And the idea was that what would happen is that over time, more people who saw his standoff there would follow his example, and they would see, hey, Cliven won here, we can win there, and more pe- more and more people would show up, and more and more ranchers would decline to pay their grazing fees, and, and eventually the range management system would be broken. I'm not, I, I'm still not clear on how exactly this was supposed to then work, but fundamentally the idea was to return the land to something like a commons, which sounds oddly almost socialist, but the idea was to return it to something like an open range where the federal government had no writ, and where if you had grazing rights, you were able to exercise them as you saw best. Um, and the idea would be that once this happened, it would occasion the shift in all kinds of American life. So I remember Ammon talking about somehow, you know, he was saying, I, well, I don't just care about the BLM, I care about the telecom companies. Um, and th- that's when I sort of realized like, how big this vision was. He's talking about deregulation of telecom companies, of banks, of, of all aspects of American life. Uh, just a couple of minutes left. Uh, this quote is, is just pretty stark. Um, this is um, from the end of January after the, the, the standoff. Um, you quote to someone named Johnson saying, as far as I see it, this is less the end than it is the beginning. Um, and that happened, that was something, so um, Lavoie Finnicum, who uh, had at that time just been um, killed in a, uh, in a roadside stop by the Oregon State Police um, with the FBI collaborating, um, at, at that time, uh, Lavoie 
whatever people in Burns thought of the occupation, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them tended to respect Lavoie. Um, he was a very charismatic um, and just sort of charming figure. He seemed very innocent in a lot of ways. Um, and I think his death took a lot of people aback. I think a lot of people felt as though it was preventable, um, which, of course, is a very complicated question uh, that I don't have a side in. Um, but, you know, it is true that very shortly after um, his death, he became a martyr to a lot of people, um, and a lot of people who were not predisposed to this movement before that. Um, and so the rancher that I was quoting there is a guy named Rodney Johnson, who had gone to the refuge to visit it, um, but had not been a supporter, and had been studious in his public comments to make sure that he wasn't seen as a supporter. Um, but I thought that quote was revealing because it was sort of um, showing how he thought of things in the sense that A, Lavoie would probably become something like a martyr figure, and that B, like none of these issues were going to go away. Um, the fundamental divisions in American politics, the fundamental disagreements about how we manage land, um, are not going to be cleared up uh, by arresting the leadership of this small movement. Um, and as a matter of fact, the arrests uh, and the sort of disastrous attempts to try the Bundys have probably made it worse. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll, uh, we'll stay tuned, of course, and you're, um, you're still in touch with um, several of the figures here? Yes, many of them. Uh, less so the Bundys, but um, we'll see how they take the book. Yeah, yeah, we'll see, yes. Very interesting book, uh, important, I think, uh, to, uh, to get inside the minds of, uh, of these, these figures. Uh, Chosen Countries, the name of the book, the subtitles of Rebellion in the West, the author is James Pogue. James Pogue, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.